Quick question. How many of you have been to the gathering of men? Oh, just about all of you. Well, let me tell you a little story about our guest speaker before I introduce him. Uh, Doug had the privilege of coming to San Antonio and addressing the gathering of men. And uh, I had a call from T.A. Strader. And he said, there's a guy coming to town that wants to stay with you and Ruth. And I thought, oh, come on. I wonder who this would be. And so uh, finally T.A. says, uh, he knows you really well. I said, okay. Uh, give me some more hints. And uh, he said, well, his name is Doug Mazza. And you know what my response to T.A. was? It's not the Doug Mazza that I know. But I knew Doug uh, 50 years ago. He was, a pledge he was in the pledge class at the college, and I was the fraternity president. So I was his big brother. And um, 50 years ago, he was taking orders from me, and he still is today. <laughs> now, Doug, you're in for a real treat tonight because uh, Doug has a real story to tell. But uh, Doug is married to Lorraine, and uh, he spent a lot of years in the automobile business with Suzuki, and then he was the CEO of Hyundai USA, and uh, had very responsible jobs, and uh, he was on the fast track. But uh, his whole uh, philosophy was, let's change the culture of the business that I'm in charge of. And he was capable of doing that. And then uh, 16 years ago, he decided to leave the automobile business and he is now the president of Johnny and Friends. And most of you are aware of that ministry. What a great job uh, he's doing there. Same thing, same philosophy. It worked for him the first time with Suzuki and he just carried it on through his life. And uh, they quadrupled the number of wheelchairs that they put out since he's been there. Uh, and he, they have great goals for this next five years. It took them 20 years to put out 100,000 wheelchairs, and his goal for the next five years is to put out 100,000 wheelchairs. Doug has co-authored a book, and it's called another kind of courage. He co-authored that with Steve Bundy and uh, Johnny Erickson Tata is the lady who forwarded that book. Um, there's not much else I can say about Doug, but uh, he's a dear friend of mine and uh, we connected about 15 years ago. And so, uh, Doug, why don't you come up and let's give him a great Texas welcome. <laughs> I don't need that long. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. I really am honored to be here. I was supposed to be here last year and uh, was in intensive care. I thought that was a pretty good excuse. <laughs> Larry didn't accept it, but he came to check out, make sure I was really laying there near death, and I was. So thank you, Larry, for coming. And I don't remember you being there, but you told me you were there, so I... I, I Appreciate that. I have uh, often been asked, 
How does a guy go from the big office suite at the top of the corporate chart, the one that he has worked for all his life to achieve, how does he go from there to kneeling on the ground in Ghana, West Africa, and lifting a young girl who has suffered from polio her whole life into a wheelchair for a living? How does God create those kinds of pathways that are so far from what our original goals were? Well, as the chief executive of a billion-dollar corporation plus, I'd can tell you that I had lots of departments reporting to me that required a rainbow of skills. It was parts and sales and warranty and product planning, just to name a few. And what this means is that every day I would get up and go to work and face a career-ending opportunity, is what that meant. Uh, and in fact, a lot of people don't realize that what CEO really stands for is career-ending opportunity, as I found out. And that'll drive you to Jesus all by itself. That's my story right there. That will definitely drive you to Jesus. So be careful what you wish for there. Uh, and that brings me to my topic tonight, which is gaining power by surrendering control. The world will not teach you that. Gaining power by surrendering control. We're going to be talking about integrity over the next few days. And before we can understand integrity, we have to understand where our power comes from. What is the source of our power? Who's in charge? And if we don't know that, we have nothing to measure our integrity against. And in answering that question, I am going to share some very personal information with you that, frankly, I've had trouble sharing in the past. And so if only one person has helped this weekend, it'll be just me. And so I'm glad you all came for that. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. One of the great uh, benefits of my life is the gift of a, a mother, a father, a family man. And uh, growing up, we attended the Episcopal Church where my dad was an usher. And I remember as a seven-year-old sitting in the back of the church in this Episcopal Church and watching my dad take up the collection. And he would, he'd go down the aisle and this beautiful music was playing and he'd be nodding and knowing hello to people in the church. And I was sitting in the back and thinking, this is a very important job in this church. And my brother, who was uh, seven at the time, uh, actually he was four, I was seven, I guess he thought this was an interesting job, uh, an important job also, and decided he wanted to participate. So one Sunday he came to church with hundreds of thousands of dollars of play money in his clothes, waiting for the offering to be taken. And my dad was moving down the aisle, and he is saying and knowing hello, and the music's playing, and he gets to our pew, and he looks down the aisle, and there's my brother with these two gigantic handfuls of play money, and I know if you're a dad, you've done this before. No is shooting out of your eyes. There's nothing coming out of your mouth. You're trying to communicate across time and space. And my brother did what you would expect a good four-year-old Christian boy to do. He ignored him completely and dumped all this money into the plate. Well, my dad, his, his eyes were squeezed shut now. I like to think he was praying, but I don't think that's what was going through his mind at that, at that time. So if you've ever been to the Episcopal Church, you know that during the offering, the ushers wait in the back of the church until... The hymn is over, a doxology plays, and they come down the aisle and hand the priest the tray that is raised up to the Lord as we sing. And my dad is standing in the back of the church, and he's holding this tray, and he looks over at the others, and they've got some dimes and quarters and envelopes. This is mounded over with cash. It was a good day on the right side that day. And he's thinking, this is the only job I have in this church. I can't, I can't take this up to the altar. And so he, say, he realizes there's some time left, and he thinks, uh, I'll just start picking this money out of the plate. And about that time, my brother spins around in the pew, and he yells, put that money back. 
Now, I don't know what happens at Wayside during the service when somebody screams out, put that money back. But in this case, about 250 heads turned around in time to see my dad putting $500 in his pocket. <clears throat> that, was, uh, that was our last day in the Episcopal Church. <laughs> but I had a, uh, a great childhood. There, there, there was one time I should tell you about... Um, that we sat in the front of the church. This was unusual. We had a guest speaker coming. My dad wanted to go as a Sunday night, and uh, he dragged all of us off. My mom's at one end of the pew. My dad's at the other, all the kids in the center. And uh, there was a pastor that picked on my dad. Not a good idea. My dad was a very funny guy. And he was sitting in the front row, and this pastor looked down at him, and he said, Sir, I want to ask you a question. If I had a rail 25 feet long and 6 inches high and 6 inches wide, would you crawl? Would you walk across that rail for $100? And he said, yes, sir, I would. So let me ask you another question. If I took that rail and I stretched it from the top of a high-rise across the street to the roof of another high-rise, would you walk across that rail? And my dad said, no, sir, not for $100, not for any amount of money. He said, let me ask you one more, one more thing. If I had one of your children and I was hanging them over the edge of that building, would you walk across that rail? My dad looked over at us (laughs) and he said, which one? (laughs) Yes, no, yes, yes, I guess. I don't know how how he was doing that. Uh, but for 40 years, we argued over which one he was talking about, and he would never... He was a man of integrity, but he didn't tell the whole truth. I don't know. He wasn't going to tell us. So uh, I had a great childhood. I was able to go to a private college, and I graduated, uh, and I knew immediately that uh, my education would serve me well and that I heard directly from the President of the United States, uh, who invited me to join the Army that month. Maybe some of you... I see some of the age of some of you in here. That was the time of the draft, and uh, so I enlisted, uh, and I'll tell you why I enlisted, because I'm a guy who likes to be in charge. That, that was my problem. I had to be in charge, and I thought there is no way the government is going to tell me that I have to be in the Army for two years, so I enlisted for four. Somehow that made me in control. I don't know how that, I don't know how that worked out, but anyway, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time if you're a guy that has to be in control, and sometimes I had to, uh, you know... I believed in God. Um, I believed Jesus was the Son of God. I came out of the army a driven man. I was just driven. My corporate career took off. uh, And uh, things were going really, really well for me. And I was learning that the more I could control, the faster I got promoted. The world was teaching me that. And sometimes I had to uh, call him, him down and and talk to him, and I'd be in trouble. And, uh, but usually God was a pretty good God willing to do things my way, the kind of God I wanted. He fits in our day planner, right? That's the kind of God we want. I had two beautiful boys. Life was good. And then my son, Ryan, was born. And for me, the world stopped turning. Ryan was the eighth case of a child born alive in the United States with Cruzan-Pfeiffer syndrome. And if I could tell you just a little bit about this for context, very early in the fetus, the sutures or the soft spots, as we call them as parents, are fused together, and so the brain is not allowed to grow to its full size. 
and usually the baby is not born alive. But in Ryan, one suture was open. God had something in mind for him. It was his forehead. And so his entire brain grew in front of his face. It pushed his eyes out of the sockets, spread his cheekbones, disrupted his upper respiratory system. He was born into horrendous pain and suffering. We had no idea we were going to have a child like that. I was with my wife when he was born. And the doctor, who had never seen anything like this either, this boy with his eyes out of the sockets and his brain in front of his face, and he just took him and he turned away from me, and he held him and he said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm so sorry. I don't see how this child can live but ours. But God did have something in mind for Ryan because at two weeks he had grown stronger in that condition. And the Children's Hospital in Chicago Doctors tried their first craniofacial advancement. That's a fancy word for saying they opened Ryan's head from side to side and front to back and laid his head open and they eased the brain back into the bowl of the head. And they took all the bone from off his head and reconstructed his head and face trying to save his life. It was the first of 13 skull and brain surgeries he would have in three years. He spent 18 months of his first three years in intensive care, one uh, in and out. He developed every kind of complication you can imagine. He went blind at six months because the bone pinched off the optic nerves and he couldn't see. And so doctors had to go in behind his face and begin to scratch away at that bone, relieve the pressure on his optic nerve to try to get his sight back. And some sight did come back for a while, and then he went blind permanently. He had hydrocephalus and a shunt was implanted. And then he began to get infection in his skull, and piece by piece, they removed this little boy's skull until there was nothing between his skin and his brain. And so doctors at UCLA went into this two-year-old now, and they cut open his chest, and they took ribs out of his chest and put together a frame in his head and wired it together. When they took the bandages off, the reality of what that really meant as a wire had popped through his eyebrow that this little boy's face was wired together. Ryan suffered incredibly. There was one time when Ryan was home, he was in and out of the hospital, recovering from a massive surgery. And I was sitting on the floor with my back up against the couch with him on the floor, his head, his poor head on my chest, watching television on a Saturday. And suddenly he had a seizure and turned to me and was in pain and collapsed not breathing. And I called for somebody to dial 911, and I rolled him over and began to breathe into his mouth. And, of course, as he finally got a breath before the ambulance arrived, and, of course, being a guy who has to be in charge, I didn't wait for the ambulance to get there. I scooped him up and took him out to the car, put him in the car seat, and headed off for the hospital. And just as I arrived at the driveway of the hospital, he had another attack, reached for me, turned blue, and collapsed no breath coming out of his body. And I stopped the car right where it was. I was just in the driveway. I didn't even pull over. I just stopped the car, ran around, scooped this two-year-old out in my arms, lifeless, his eyes staring up at the sky, his legs flopping. And despite the fact that I knew that someday this may happen, I never pictured it happening on an asphalt parking lot, having not waited for help there all by myself. And so I put my mouth over his and tried to breathe into his mouth and ran 
for the, the door as fast as I could, not doing either one extremely well. And as I burst into the emergency room, there was a nurse behind the counter and who saw me. And for a moment, everyone just froze, and it seemed like a long time. It was probably only seconds. But she came and took Ryan out of my arms and disappeared into the hospital, and I just stood there and shook from head to toe. I was unable to follow my son into the hospital. There will come a time in your life, if all you have is your own strength, that you will not be able to follow. There will come a time if the only strength you have is your own strength that you can do no more. The best you will ever be is you if you are all you have. We were not built to travel through this life in our own strength. And I learned that that day. I had seen a lot in my life and people die. But in that moment, I no longer had the strength or ability to follow him into the hospital. He spent the night and was resuscitated and came home with the admonition that these attacks would continue and get stronger and eventually one would simply take his life. It was two weeks later that I got a call at work to come to the hospital immediately. I knew what the problem was. I did what any of us would do. I dropped, ran out, got in the car. I knew where he would be. I went to the top floor of the hospital, the pediatric intensive care floor. I found his room. There were so many doctors around his bed, I couldn't see him. The drapes were, were drawn. He liked it that way because he could never, his eyes never closed. We never got that far in the surgeries. And this doctor speak was going on that we don't really understand, and I'm trying to understand it, and I waited for a break in the conversation, and I leaned forward and I tapped the senior surgeon on the shoulder. I said, how's Ryan? Mr. Maz, I need to talk to you down the hallway. I knew this wasn't good, so he and I and a nurse walked down the hallway to the children's playroom. The nurse was for me. I didn't know that. And as I walked into this room, I remember having a smile on my face because I knew that it was appropriate that this be the room where, where I had this conversation about Ryan. Because this was the room where God had started teaching me luxury. It wasn't the car that drove me to the hospital or the home that I had with a mortgage I could just barely afford. Luxury for me had become standing in the corner of that room and watching my son play with other, other kids. He never had a friend who didn't have an IV. And so we sat down in this little kindergarten furniture with the door locked, and this surgeon in his late 60s at the time, who had seen everything, with tears in his eyes, because he had seen even a sense of humor in this child come through, and a personality, and an incredible will to live and struggle. With tears in his eyes, he said to me, there comes a time when medical science has done all that it can do. And for Ryan, I'm, I'm afraid that time is now. He can't live more than two or three days in his condition. Now, if you have to be in charge like I am and you're afraid of what's on the other side of being in charge, you'll do what I did. I comforted the doctor. I'm not proud of that. That wasn't appropriate. But it's what I did. And when you do something like that, there's two reasons why that I have learned. When you have to be in charge of everything, 
You have issues with either fear or pride or both, and I had both. I had lots of issues with fear and pride. And when that happens, you are afraid of what's on the other side of total control. And so I asked the doctor if I could stay there because despite the fact, again, that I knew someday this may happen, I had no idea what I would say to my family. I had never gone there in that conversation in my head. But I did know if Ryan was going to go through this, I'd go through it with him. And so I walked down the hallway to his room and I took off my jacket and put it on a chair. And my family and I sat there for three days and three nights watching his chest go up and down. His heart rate, 250, never went below 180. That little boy, he fought, he, he fought for every breath of life. And on the third day, as we were exhausted, Ryan had been in a coma from four to four that day in the morning till the afternoon. And we're si- I was sitting by his bed staring at him, and he began to stir. He hadn't stirred in 12 hours. And he could see at that time, and he, he turned his head and saw me sitting alongside of him. And our eyes met. And I remember he had a, a soft cloth around his wrist. It was pinned to the sheet about 10 inches long. It was an arterial cut down. The veins were burned out in both arms and legs, and now they were down to the arteries, and he pinned his arm to the sheet. And he saw me there, and our eyes met, and he reached for me, and he ran out of cloth, and it was all the strength he had left, and he put his arm back down. But the reason I'm here tonight is what happened in that moment. When our eyes met, he looked into me in a way that no one has ever, will ever do again. He looked into my soul. And I talked earlier about how we can communicate across time and space with our children. Perhaps for you, it's a soccer field or a baseball diamond, and they're they're out there and they're saying, watch me, watch me. And you're saying, remember what we said. And that kind of communication can take place across time and space. And I could see what Ryan was saying to me. Daddy, help me. Help me. You're the highest power that I know. I don't know anything above you. You're the one in whom I put my faith. And you're the one that told me I was going to be okay. Help me. And my heart broke. Because in that moment, I knew I had never had that authority. And I got down close to Ryan's ear, and I said this for the very first time to him. Ryan, I can't help you anymore. Jesus Christ is going to take care of you now. And with that, he slipped back into his coma. And I slipped down onto the floor, holding onto the side of that bed. Three years of emotion unreleased. Three years of being in charge, of holding it all in. Flooded out of me in total collapse on that floor. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that collapse. One, the world would understand the emotion of the moment. Anyone would understand that. But I'm here to tell you something else happened in that moment. Unwittingly, with a mustard seed of faith, having no relationship really with the God that I had talked to and negotiated with, I gave my son to Jesus Christ, the most precious thing in the world, And I felt an incredible weight lifted off my shoulders. And I believe today that Jesus Christ was in that room and said, I was wondering when you were going to invite me into this problem. 
And he took that cross and he lifted it off my back and put it on his back. And I felt that weight released. And it caused my collapse onto the floor because I no longer carried Ryan for the very first time since he took his first breath. The nurse came and said, you'll have to go home. You're no good to, you know, your family or to Ryan or to us. That's probably not the order they had it in, but I was, now had become the patient. He said, he's going to make it through the night, and if anything changes, we'll give you a call. A very different person left that, that hospital that night, confused. I knew that something very, very important had happened, but I didn't know what it was. And went home, terrified, and went to a back room and laid in the fetal position, curled up, exhausted from three days of sitting in a chair, and fell into a deep sleep. And about 10.30 that night, the phone rang. And I put my feet on the floor, and I stared at that telephone, and it rang five times, and I didn't pick it up. But I remember in my half-awake, half-sleep, I stared at that phone, and I said, Oh, no. Oh, no. And finally, on the fifth ring, I picked it up, and it was the intensive care nurse. And she said, I don't, explain, I, I don't know how to explain what happened after you left, but I was in Ryan's room. We had moved his arterial cut down from his wrist to his ankle. And I heard a noise as I was doing some paperwork, and I turned around, and he's standing up on the bed smiling at me. And I thought, how, how could that possibly be? I have seen death before. I know how close to death he was. And he's standing up on the bed smiling at me. And my reaction as a non-believer, that well, the first thing that went through my head is, what's wrong with these doctors? How come they can't tell me what condition my son is in? It's frustrating. But my mind immediately went back to something very special that had happened in that room. You know, God didn't heal my son. He didn't change the shape of his head. He didn't make him all better. But he wanted to know that he was in charge and that if you will turn over the most important thing in the world to you and surrender him to me, I have the power to lift him up from any circumstance. We went back to the hospital and surely Ryan was exhausted, but he was awake and he stayed there for another couple of weeks with the same condition that the doctor said he came in with but didn't know why he felt so good. And so he came home, he came home again. My wife brought me back to church. I had given up on I had given up on church a long time ago. Didn't think there was anything there for me. But there was something curious in my mind, something that had happened. I played. I can tell you, I can tell you, men, the reason I'm here is a day doesn't go by that I don't play in those seconds that I talked to you about. God has planted that in my head. If you'll serve me, I can lift him up. And I knew something had happened, but it takes a long time. You know, faith is a journey, not a destination. And so as I went back to church, I became surrounded by men like the ones in this room, had a relationship with them like I never had with men before that cared about me and loved me. They would call me at work and we would pray on the phone. I was in my ivory tower at Hyundai and people were praying with me on the phone and I thought, we don't pray in the phone in the car business. You know, that's not, what we, that's not the way we conduct the car. But I didn't know what that was all about. We'd be praying on the phone. 
And these men would call up and they'd ask me, how are you? And I, fine was not acceptable. They genuinely stopped their day to find out how I was and cared about me and loved me. And so I began to pray differently. And I, I learned how to pray. And I found out what a personal relationship with Jesus Christ was through my pastor and through those men. And it began to change my attitude toward Ryan and toward his purpose. For I had asked God to show me what purpose this boy could possibly have. What purpose in life could he possibly have for all this suffering? And instead he showed me the purpose for my life. And I asked God to save my son. And instead he saved me. I owe Ryan everything. My eternity. I don't know if I would have found it without him. I owe him everything. He is my partner for eternity. And so as I was learning to pray differently, I still had this kind of immature ending to my prayer. I still wanted the last word. You know, I didn't want to quite give up total, total power. And I would pray, Lord, at the end of the prayer, would be, you know, Lord, what do you want from me? What, it, what do you want from me? I, I've given you everything, but what do you want from me? I can't do disability with children. There's got to be something else that I can do. You've got to take this from me, to take this cup from me. I can't do disability with children. But in his time and with his constant faithfulness and patience, he drew me to him. And when I prayed that prayer, I found out what my friends meant when they said that God spoke to them. There wasn't a burning bush or a voice, but the same thing came into my head every time I prayed that pathetic, what do you want from me? And, that, and what came into my head was, I want you. I want you. You have given me everything back that I gave you in the first place. Every good and perfect gift I gave you, you've offered me back. But you haven't given me your whole self. Sometimes when we give something to the Lord, it's like giving Him our problem. It's like giving Him a, a, a worn-out old shoe that we really don't want to get rid of. And we hand Him the shoe, but we kind of hang on to the tip of the shoelace. God, God's power is not going to come into your life if you're hanging on to the tip of the shoelace when you give Him the shoe. He wants the whole thing. He wants that palm up. He wants those fingers spread as you hand it to Him and trust Him with it. And I found that the power in my life did not come in as long as I was hanging on to anything just in case God didn't show up. God doesn't have any in cases. He doesn't show up. He's already there before you get there. And so in his time and with his constant faithfulness and patience, he drew me to him. And I gave him control. He put his arm around me and he proved to me there's only one source of power in the world and it's not in my flesh. Was I in charge in corporate America? I thought I was in charge, but it turns out all I had was responsibility. And that's all any of us have. We are not the ones in charge. And the more we turn over to him, he will give us all the responsibility we're willing to accept. And it honors him when we do. But we need to get out of his way and let him be the one in charge. At Hyundai, I even made an announcement in the boardroom that I'd, I'd given the company to Christ. The chairman wasn't too thrilled about that, but that's, that's, that's okay. Have you noticed how much better Hyundai's are since Jesus took that company over? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I was, if he can fix that, he's a big God. I was there. 
Any power that we attain by our own works is doomed to be hollow and empty. It's built on shifting sand. We're all differently abled. We're flawed, yet loved by a merciful God. And the only real power we'll ever have is offered as a gift free for the offering from Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for the purpose of accepting our sins and burdens. And when we won't turn them over to Him completely, we dishonor Him. We tell Him that He died in vain. But when we set aside our earthly pride and we say, Lord, I turn this problem or disability over to You, then we glorify Him. And He shows us the way through. And when we do, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that's the same awesome power whose resume includes creating the universe. I think he can take care of my problems with a resume like that. He'll be empowered by a living, loving God that was willing to send his son to suffer as much pain and suffering physically and emotionally as the human body can possibly endure. Whatever you have suffered, he has suffered more. What God would do that? God wants us to know that we will never understand our suffering, but I'll model it for you. I understand I will go through it ahead of you and for you, but trust in me, it all has some purpose. He demonstrated in the most graphic way he understands our pain and suffering, but he also demonstrated the victory, the ultimate one, the promise to show us the way out of our troubles if we'll turn them over to him, if we'll yield control and seek his will in all situations. That's where our integrity comes from. Allow me to quote from our inspiration at Johnny and Friends, Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny's been in a wheelchair for 45 years. When she had been in a wheelchair for 35 years, I heard her interviewed by NBC, and this cynical reporter asked her this question, how could you trust a God that would leave you in a wheelchair for 35 years? And I want to tell you what Johnny said. She didn't flinch. She had a beautiful smile. She didn't hesitate. This is what she said, and I quote, I could not trust a God who didn't know what suffering was, who didn't know what I was going through. You couldn't convince me to trust in him. But that he wrote the book on suffering, and he called it Christ, relieves me. Because I look at the cross, and I see God beaten and bloodied, hammering hatred, flies buzzing. I see God, a God who understands and empathizes with my paralysis. He is worthy of my trust. He is worthy of my faith. And he is certainly worthy of my confidence. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can endure. Oh, my goodness. That is the most annoying part of the Bible I have ever read. <laughs> I want you to sit like I did alongside of your son in intensive care. God's not going to bring you more than you can endure. Oh, man, I think I'm right there, baby. I'll tell you, I'm right there. And when you do, when you trust him with that, to bring you through, that light at the end of the tunnel that you see isn't a train coming at you. That's Romans 8.28. People want to know how to get Romans 8.28. 28. 1 Corinthians 10.13 comes first. When you are willing to put enough faith in God that whatever your circumstances, you will trust Him. Notice it doesn't say that He's going to take you around your circumstances. He's going to walk you through your circumstances. He's going to go through with you. And if you put your faith that He will walk you through, 
then God's promise for Romans 8.28 is for all of us. All of God's promises are for all of God's people all the time. Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for the good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Can a blind, twisted body, who is my son who has never spoken, can he... Can all of that work together for good? The greatest thing that ever happened in my life was the birth of my son, Ryan. I told you I owe him everything. The Lord revealed my son, Ryan, to be a blessing in my life. I I give thanks for him every day. And I give thanks to him publicly here to you today. For reasons I once didn't understand, but someday will be fully explained to me, maybe in heaven, Ryan has just reached his 38th birthday. He's blind. He doesn't speak. He's hard of hearing. He can't sit up in a wheelchair without a brace. He's never spoken a word. I've been all over the world. I had the privilege of meeting with cabinet members in Washington and a president of the United States when I was in business and captains of industry. And the only reason I tell you that is because I have a mentor who's a 38-year-old man that's never spoken to me. He's the most important person in my life. And when I go back, I will try to remember as many names of you as I possibly can in faces because he's been listening to one-sided conversations for 38 years. And I sit down and I tell him what he has accomplished and what he has done and what God is doing with his life. And I'm never closer to God than when I'm with my son, Ryan. God answered my angry prayer of, why, Lord, why the pain and suffering in this little child? And God's answer to me, and I have received at least a partial answer, maybe I'll understand it all someday. He's told me I love your son even more than you do. He's my child too. I created him in my image just the way he is. But if you have faith in me, I will use his life and your body for my special purpose. And that's been God's promise to me. And I have traveled around the world for the Lord, with the Lord, with his permission. He's never abandoned me or let me down. It's been an incredible journey. See, in Ryan, he sees only beauty and innocence, not the broken shell that I mourn. Ryan was built for eternity just the way he is. He's an eternal being. And that message from the Lord has given me comfort in a child whose life at one time I thought didn't have any purpose. Did I have an important job as a chief executive of a billion-dollar company? I don't even begin to scratch the surface as to what Ryan has done in the world, how people around the world have come to Christ after hearing his story and the efforts that we have been able to do delivering a 100,000 wheelchairs, family camps throughout the United States and internationally. And that's what makes me eager to be here tonight with you, is that I've come to realize that if I can hold my physically deformed blind child in my arms and I can see him as a gift from God, then how much easier should it be for me to turn over that problem at work or a disagreement with my wife, 
or my children to stop and listen to them and see things from their point of view. I've learned all of that from Ryan. I know there's a variety of backgrounds in here today and this weekend. Some of you brought a burden with you and smiled all the way through it. Some of you are straining to balance work and home, have a disability of your own, a concern for someone you love. Some wish for more time with your children and to be more of an influence in their lives. Well, to those of us who are parents, I'd like to offer us a challenge. Next time you see them, let's just stop them in their tracks no matter how old they are. Just stop them and throw your arms around them and tell them, I just wanted you to know I love you just the way you are. Even if you're pretty sure they understand that, say the words to them. I just wanted you to know I love you just the way you are. I never leave Ryan's room without telling him, I love you just the way you are. Our children need to hear that. And in that moment, give thanks for the moment that you're able to do that and they're able to hear you and understand you. And men, when you're back at home with your wife, I hope you'll find time for just the two of you. It doesn't have to be dinner out. It could be something as simple as a walk around the block at sunset because those days, I can promise you, are not going to last forever either. Jesus Christ loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. He wants to share all your time with you. He desires to be your partner for eternity. The Lord has given every single creature some special gift and talent that He created. Some are incredibly fast or incredibly strong, but you, you and I have this extraordinary gift. We are the only being in the universe with a soul. It's how God communicates with us. He loves us that much that He wants to be a part of us and be in us and give us the opportunity to hear the Holy Spirit and to feel His presence and to communicate with Him. Our soul is an appendage. It's like your arms and your legs. And to wake up in the morning and to choose not to use your arms or legs would make no sense, would it? Why would we wake up in the morning and not want to exercise communication with our soul? Ryan has no use of his arms or legs, and he sees only shadows. But I can tell you, the most important life-sustaining appendage is alive and well with him. And that's Christ's love, his mercy, and his presence. You can gain power by surrendering control. And if that's something that anyone here tonight would like to do, or if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, or want to recommit to Jesus Christ, and you'd like to have his power and his peace you want to surrender control to Him and let Him have control of your life, then I would invite you to pray this prayer with me. Men, we're going to be talking about integrity for the next few days. I invite you to surrender to the Lord that you could hear what He has to say about integrity and about your eternity. Let's go to prayer together. And if you would... Pray this prayer to yourself with me as we go along. Lord, you know the areas of my life that I pridefully attempt to control. 
Give me the strength to surrender that control. Help me to break down every barrier that I use to keep you out. And as I do, I give you thanks for taking my burden. And Lord, there may be some here today who do not know you as their personal Savior or some who need to recommit their lives to you. We ask that you would touch their hearts right now and give them the will to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I want you to come into my life. I want to know your peace and receive your promise of eternal life. Forgive me for my sins. As best as I know how, I give my life to you. Just as best as I know how, I give my life to you. Amen. If you prayed to receive the Lord tonight or prayed that prayer with me, I hope that you will see a pastor either tonight or tomorrow or while you're here. They would be so encouraged and would want to encourage you. Uh, Or you can tell me, but I, I think your pastor would be really honored to hear about a decision that you've made, and I know they've got some information for you and would love to pray with you. So thank you uh, for getting us started tonight. Uh, I'm honored to be here. Thank you for listening to my story about Ryan, and I'll see you in the morning. God bless you.